This is HPR episode 1743 entitled Scale 13x Part 1 of 6. It is hosted by Lord Brash and Lutt and is about 68 minutes long. The summary is Lord Brash and Lutt at Scale 13x Today Docker, Fedora Activity Day, Matthew Miller Fedora Project Lead. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen of Hacker Public Radio. This is Lord Drakenblut, the Digital Dragon. This is my first check-in for the uh, trip to scale. Um, I flew out of Indianapolis International Airport at 7.30 a.m., touched down at 9.30 a.m. in Los Angeles. I've checked into my hotel. I've scouted out the Hilton to kind of get a feel for things. And along the way, I've actually managed to run into Gareth Greenway of um, with Scale. I think the first thing I need to do is actually cover kind of how I came to be here. Kind of give a little backstory for the people who don't know. Um, January of last year, January 19th, in fact, um, went to the hospital with a lot of pain, discomfort, um, severe issues eating. And that was when the initial diagnosis of some kind of mass in me Um, It was within a month that it was diagnosed as stage 4 esophageal cancer. I battled through all of last year with radiation, chemo, um, not being able to eat for several months, actually. Um, I had a feeding tube and a drain tube inserted into me and for several months my eating consisted of having liquid food basically pumped in directly into my small intestines for 16 hours a day folks imagine being tethered for 16 hours a day to a machine pumping food into you it it got very very boring and The saving grace was because of all the painkillers and everything I was going through. Um, I slept a lot during that time. Well, late last year, I had several people tell me that they would love to see me at the Southern California Linux Expo. And I informed them that I just 
did not have the money out of my own hand to be able to do that. And so they encouraged me to attempt to do an indie or to do a crowdfunding campaign using the site GoFundMe. And I have to say thank you to every single person who donated. Over $1,100 was donated through GoFundMe. Now, I will tell you folks, that worked out to more like about $950, I want to say. I'd have to go through and actually calculate it after um, the transaction fees that um, occur between GoFundMe through WePay to my personal account. And that alone would have been enough to just cover the trip. And then two incredible gentlemen uh, stepped forward. One used frequent flyer miles to pay for my airfare for a round-trip ticket from Indy to LAX and back. And then another gentleman stepped forward, and he paid for my hotel room that I am talking to you at from right now. So... The support from the community to help get me to be here um, the day before scale has been incredible. And I cannot thank everyone who has been there, has had shown support, has, you know, words of encouragement, you know, it, it's just been incredible. And I cannot thank all of you who are listening right now, everyone who helped get me through those sometimes very, very difficult days when it just seemed like, well, the cure was worse than the disease at points. But, you know, I persevered through it, and here I am now. Um, an update on things. About a month ago... Um, I had found out that after being on what the doctor called a maintenance routine for two months where they had taken me off of most of the chemo drugs and they had me on a chemo drug called Zolota that I was taking one week on, one week off, you know, like that, um, that things had started to progress again in my lymph nodes. Things had gone from... 1.5 centimeters to 1.9 centimeters in lymph nodes in my lower abdomen and the doctor dove on it and you know I'm I'm talking this was almost exactly a month before this trip was supposed to happen there were you know some concerns I wouldn't even be able to make this trip because of that but the doctor as incredible as she is, I cannot thank my oncologist and the wonderful nurses um, at the cancer center I go to and the numerous times I've had to be in the hospital last year. I cannot thank them all enough either. Um, But here we are now, folks, the day before scale. Um, I'm hoping to catch up with a few people today, but things start tomorrow, and I will do my best um, during the course of 
the next several days to catch as many interviews as I can to report on things and kind of give you my perspective of scale and maybe I can help give some insight in some different ways than some other people as someone who has run a conference in the past. Um, That is something I hope to bring back now that my health is getting a little better, I'm getting my strength back, you know. Um, So hopefully you will see the return of a conference led by the Digital Dragon. And again, thank you all for the support, for helping me to get here to celebrate life. And with that, for now, I will bid you all adieu. All right, Hacker Public Radio, Lord Drakenblut checking in. Um, wandering around the conference the night before, and I stumbled into a gentleman by the name of Jerome who works for Docker. Why don't you uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Jerome Pitazzoni, and I work for Docker. I, I've been with Docker for four years now, so uh, before it was Docker, when it was just .cloud, and I was doing mostly ops before, and now I am happily uh, spreading the word about Docker uh, at events like Scale and other conferences, while still trying to uh, make some sometimes symbolic but still useful contributions to the project. So you're largely a user, but you also or you work for Docker. What are your uh, main contributions um, to Docker? Is it technical? Is it presenting about it? You know. So on the code side of things, uh, my my most significant contributions were back in the day of Docker 0.6. I think it was still like one year and something ago. Uh, implementing like the the privilege mode of Docker, which is a, a nice feature allowing you to run Docker within Docker or to run uh, network stuff within Docker. For instance, you can put a VPN client or server or a firewall or a router within Docker. Uh, because one of my endeavors was to put everything into containers and so uh, I needed that kind of feature. Now my contributions are more on the, well, being the kind of uh, glue between the community and the developers that build Docker. So going to conferences like Scale or Lisa or OSCon gives me an opportunity to talk about Docker, of course, but also to talk with people using it and come back with some feedback and stories when I get back to the HQ, basically. So, um, if I understand part of what you said there correctly, um, you kind of helped create um, Inception within Docker, you know, or as, you know, the internet meme goes, yo, dog, I heard you like containers, so I put your container in a container so you could have containers in your container. That's that's exactly it, and when we did the blog post about that feature, we actually used that meme precisely, yeah. <laughs> very awesome. Um, Docker has seemed to become one a very, very hot um, subject here lately, but containers in all reality on the Linux side of things isn't something very new. I mean, LXC, isn't it, has been around for a while. What kind of sets Docker apart from some of these other container, you know, formats that might have been around before? 
Yes, as you pointed out, LXC is not new. Uh, it's at least five years old uh, because that's when I started to dabble with it. Uh, and before that, there was OpenVZ and vServer. And, in, and if you really want to go back like to the roots, if you go to the 60s, IBM had something called LPAR, which is basically containers on big mainframes. So containers by themselves are not new. Uh, what Docker did was to take this really amazing piece of technology and make that usable not only by black belt sysadmin gurus uh, with tons of experience, but also regular developers who wanted to be able to spin up new environments uh, in just a few seconds and to build applications in containers but without having to go through a, a steep learning curve. So what we did was just to make that easy, the same way that uh, back in the days uh, installing a Unix system was not complicated. You just had to download tons of tables and compiling stuff and it was not complicated but it was still a lot of uh, specific knowledge until we had nice installers and package managers and things like that. So I, I like that comparison because um, the, the change is not really in the technology but in the user experience and the ease of use of containers. Now, another um, format I'm a similar or I'm aware of that seems to be similar from not having put a lot of time into them myself is the BSD jails. Um, how would you compare those two? So, the jails are just, I would say, containers on BSD. So on, on BSD, we have jails, on Solaris, and in and, and, and the legacy of Solaris, we have zones. Uh, on Linux, we have uh, the, the containers. Um, but they have small differences, but comparing them is, is just like comparing the Linux kernel and the BSD kernel and the Solaris kernel. They have a different history. They have some different features. But fundamentally, that's a Unix kernel, and we can run stuff on it. So the same way, those different kernels have different uh, containerization techniques, but that's still containers, and that, that, that it's, the rest is like implementation details. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Docker not too long ago hit 1.0, if I'm not mistaken. Where do you see some of the next major features for Docker? What are some of the next big things we can see coming for Docker? Yeah, we, we released 1.0 in June last year, uh, and the, since then, um, all the, the, the releases have been stabilization, stabilization, stabilization. There has been a few added features, uh, like recently where there was 1.5, uh, just a few days ago, added better IPv6 support and things like that, So, but it's more on the minor increment kind of change rather than big groundbreaking things uh, with the exception of the work that we are doing on provenance and signature which which means basically that when you will run a container uh, you will have the ability to know exactly where it comes from the same way that when you connect to a website you can use SSL to know that you're indeed connecting to the website of your bank and not to some uh pirate website operated by some evil persons so the same way we want to have that for container images so that for instance when you do uh, docker run wordpress to uh, fire up an instance of a wordpress blog you know that you end up running code that has been kind of uh, um, validated and signed by 
the people maintaining WordPress and not uh, something that will kind of take over your machine and turn it into a Bitcoin mining uh, botnet. Um, now, one interesting application I've seen of Docker recently is actually out of the InfoSec community where I saw um, someone posing the idea of packaging up um, and you can't do you can do this further you know with just applications on the Linux desktop as I understand it but this gentleman was um, proposing the idea of packaging um, things like Metasploit inside of a docker container and then people being able to pull down those containers to their systems instead of a traditional packaging format what other you know what are your thoughts on that and other you know interesting uses of docker you've seen so if you if we were to list of the exciting use cases i think it would be pretty complicated because the, the list would be really endless but yeah that's one of the examples of really creative uses of docker today um some people are kind of trying to get Docker to the desktop, which means uh, running a Linux machine. And when you want to install something like GIMP or Inkscape or even a browser or uh, um, anything like that, you run it in the container and you add an extra isolation layer uh, for well for different purposes. The goal is not to say, okay, this runs in the container, so now it's extremely secure and it won't be able to break out. No, the goal is to add an extra layer because security is all about adding layer after layer to make the whole thing uh, safer, well, m more secure. So if I run Chrome or Firefox uh, in a container, uh, it will be much harder for the latest Java or Flash exploit of the day to break out of my browser, access my data, and send sensitive stuff to uh, to to, to um, uh, malvolent persons, basically. Um, I believe there's actually at least one Linux distro that is doing that right now. I think it's Cubes OS is based on Docker, but I could be mistaken. Don't quote me on that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but it is a and it's very interesting Linux distro that actually came out of um, exploit research on Windows, of all things. It came out of the Blue Pill project, where someone had found a way to shoehorn a, um, v, you know, a hypervisor into a system between a already running Windows system and the hardware. And the researcher who did that, she took that idea and has turned it into Cubes OS, which is a Fedora-based distro. So, what are the you know the most exciting uses for Docker you see right now? Uh, so I didn't know about that one. So that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, it's uh, and I I will say again, I'm not a hundred percent sure that was based on Docker, but it does use containers to containers virtualization something of that effect but what you were describing sounds like cubes os and it could well be docker so let's see if, if i were to tell like them the one of the most uh, impressive uses of docker i've seen recently um yeah that, that's a tough one um i would go to maybe well, some people have been running virtual machines inside of containers to test malwares. Uh, so basically, when they when they want to run some suspicious code and see how it will behave and what will happen, 
they don't run it directly in a container. They run it in a VM, but they start that VM in a container, not to add an extra layer of protection or whatever, but just for the convenience that you get from uh, manipulating container images. Uh, so that's that's pretty interesting because very often a question that people keep asking like constantly is okay. So VMs are. And um, I will add that one of the things that might that might allow is if you're running um, a container, um, there are malware out there and systems for malware out there that can detect the fact that they're running inside of a virtual machine. And right now, a container might sneak past the radar of a uh, one of these systems, allowing it to still think it's running fully instead of shutting itself down, realizing, oh, I'm inside of a VM. Yeah, that's, that's once again in security, um, it's not really a question of should I use uh, X, Y, or Z, it's X, Y, and Z. So um, by... In that scenario, by putting a VM, well, the malware is inside a VM, the VM is in a container, um, not so much for the added security, even though that helps, but for convenience. And, and yeah, that, that kind of, um, it's a kind of answer to the question that people uh, ask constantly about, should I go for VMs or containers? The answer is basically to go for both, because... Um, it's we, we, we don't lose performance or we don't add overhead when we add containers to the mix, but we gain some flexibility, uh, some convenience. And so we the, the idea is to leverage both to get the, the best of both worlds. Very, very nice. Um, one thing I'm also aware of is I believe it was the CoreOS has recently forked... Um, Docker, um, anything you can tell us about, you know, kind of the genesis of that fork and where that project stands right now? So, as far as I know, it's not exactly a fork. They say, okay, um, we want to do containers, but we want to do them a different way. And they started their own container format. So, we're, we're looking at that, uh, obviously. We don't consider it uh, exactly as competition per se. It's like partial competition maybe in the sense that uh, that new container format competes with a small part of what Docker does um, but uh, whatever the end result is like if their new runtime is amazing for performance or security or whatever uh, we can always integrate it with Docker because one of the goals of Docker is this kind of modularity we have multiple storage drivers multiple execution drivers and so if, if their thing happens to be really awesome and impressive and the community says, we want this, then Docker will very certainly have it as well. Um, and part of the way this works, if I'm mistaken, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you actually end up running a kernel with inside of the container also, or are you leveraging the kernel of the host machine? So we are leveraging the kernel of the host machine. And, and when I say we, it's not Docker specifically, but containers in general. You um, end up having a unique kernel for the machine, and the kernel provides the isolation characteristics of containers. And I recently caught um, Russ Pavlicek talking about... Um, one of the things he talked about was microkernels coming out, where... 
these are highly stripped down kernels where because they're running inside of virtualized environments you can throw away a lot of things um is there anything like that you know that docker uses or because it's leveraging the um host kernel that that's just not even something that comes into play so docker doesn't leverage that kind of um architecture yet however um if when, when that becomes something more uh, mainstream or if there is a specific advantage that we should absolutely use because it um, brings brings some major improvement to containerization or whatever uh, we will be very happy to 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 integrate that uh, docker is extremely community driven in the sense that the, the docker engine so the open source part that everybody installs on the machine when they want to do Docker stuff basically. Uh, that part is mostly developed by the community. Um, it's there are, there, is, there are a bunch of maintainers that have uh, yes or no decision making in, in, in the process of merging contributions. But I would say maybe one third of those maintainers work for Docker Inc. And everybody else is employed by Red Hat, Google, Rackspace, and other uh, companies that have. Uh, big involvement in the container community so whenever I say we will do this or that I'm not talking for Docker Inc but for the community as a whole because that's really where the bulk of the development is happening nowadays so if um, people want to get you know involved with um, using Docker um, contributing to it you know just getting it you know learning more about it where would you say would be some of the best places for them to start out so for users, the, the docker.com website has tons of resources. Um, we, we have a kind of uh, demo, which is a JavaScript mockup that runs in the browser, so you can start to play with Docker commands without installing anything. Then there is boot to docker which is a tiny virtual machine. It's like 25 megs, so it's as ridiculous as a VM download can be. And it runs pretty much everywhere on VirtualBox, VMware, KVM, and whatever. And, and and that gets you pretty far because that's that's boot to Docker is not the demo version of Docker. It's, it's a full-fledged uh, version of Docker. That's the official version that people use around. And if you want to uh, try to contribute to Docker, um, the GitHub repo has has everything to get you started. And I've been told that for the second anniversary of the Docker project next month in March, there would be a, a big worldwide event uh, to uh, promote a contribution to Docker project. I don't have much more details at this point, but uh, people willing to contribute um, are welcome to stay tuned about that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you may have well hear, heard it here first that for Docker's um, next major event so look forward to that well jerome is there um anything else you'd like to add or say to the community before we uh, end this for the night um i think the only thing i'd like to add is that um whoever is in the la area should come and attend to scale because that's uh, probably my favorite local linux event uh it has everything from the bigger conferences like LinuxCon or oscon but at the more uh, somehow reasonable scale pardon the pun uh, and definitely check it out if you're around alright well uh, thank you for the time and this is Lord Dragon 
Lord Drakenblut with Hacker Public Radio. So remember, be the media. Don't consume it. Alright, this is Lord Drakenblut with Hacker Public Radio, and I've got um, UV bus guy here we're at scale and this is part of the fedora activity day at scale um what are you guys hacking on today so we're uh, building a standalone kiosk to connect with people that meet with us at conferences because one of the main purposes that we are here as an open source community is to attract contributors and users and often that ends up giving them an email address or having them write down their information on a piece of paper. Um, we need a better way to keep track of people who are interested in, in joining the Fedora community or having a speak on their campus uh, or uh, getting them plugged in to do artwork or, or hack on certain projects. So we're building a portable way to do that on open source technology using Python uh, to uh, better connect with future contributors open source. Now, this is the second year at scale you guys are working on this project, as I've understood in the conversation so far. Um, where did you get, guys get to last year, and what are you, the major goals for today? Sure. Um, last year, we got a lot of the core pieces figured out. This year, we're actually trying to make something that actually works. It kind of, uh, we stopped just short of getting something um, ready to drive and then uh, we went home and went back to our projects and kind of forgot about it so this year is foremost going to be getting something running and then adding features as we go along and and testing out and uh, if everything goes well hopefully we'll be using it at the booth tomorrow all right now this um is primarily you know as since we're at fedora activity day something aimed at fedora but are you guys um during the whole design of this trying to keep branding out of it so branding could be you know keep the branding out of it completely and then you know like on the web interface do the branding something like that to um, make it to where you know more projects could use this absolutely you know uh, we're building it uh, out with a, a template structure where the logo is defined separately so we, we actually hope you know if Ubuntu ends up using this at their booth or open SUSE, that would be wonderful I you know we have it uh, we have all the code posts on github and if of course it's a free open source license of GPL so we, we hope people fork it and continue to contribute and use it um, okay well since you brought up the license why um, a GPL license over say the AGPL, which at least as I understand it, is friendlier towards um, network, cloud services, things like that. Um, well, I, on one on one hand, I I would answer that as a Fedora member and say that the GPL is our is our default license for most things from an ideological standpoint and protecting freedom. Uh, from a personal standpoint, uh, it it depends a lot on the audience uh, about how I would personally license something and, and who I might be collaborating to work on. MIT is another popular and great license to work with, too. Um, in, in this case, because this is a Fedora uh, project thing, I'm, I'm sticking with our standard to, to fit our ideology. All right, and if people want to get involved with this, check it out, see where it is, where should they head to? Yeah, GitHub. Uh, GitHub.com slash VWBusGuy. 
and it's the Beefy Connection Project. And uh, as a shameless plug, check out my other projects while you're there. <laughs> now, um, as things stand, what uh, things do you guys need to get done to get it functional? And then we can go from there. Uh, a lot of today is going to be in user testing, so we really need people to come in here and try it out with your browser and see if it breaks or not. That's uh, going to be a lot of what today is going to be, is, is debugging and getting all the pieces working together. And then past that, you know, what what are places you guys could use contributions from people who aren't here who might be looking for a project to get started on and moving to? Yeah, absolutely. So the from here, uh, it's it's going to be largely defined by our user base. Our goal for this is to make it work on a standalone kiosk, but it wouldn't be much effort for this to be scalable in a cloud on something like Heroku or OpenShift um, so that this could be used more broad, broadly with uh, greater collaboration. So I, I could foresee this being used, for instance, if people uh, have people in the organization from multiple conferences at once, being able to track that well, having a greater variety of database backends and things. So that, that, that's where I could see this going. And, and uh, of course, uh, patches and forks are, are welcome. All right. And um, anything else you want to add to the um, Hacker Public Radio audience about this project right now? Um, other than uh, check it out and uh, check our booth out at scale, and uh, we would love to see your contributions, and we'd love to see this being used in your own projects. Well, unfortunately, this audio probably won't make it out for in time for scale this year, but definitely you know check out scale you know in following years or just other conferences. Fedora is at almost pretty much any um, conference, and you can always reach them online. So. Um, and so this is Lord Dragonblute signing off for this segment of uh, HPR, guys. <music> Greetings, ladies and gentlemen of Hacker Public Radio. Here I am again, Lord Dragonblute, and I have with me Matthew Miller, the Fedora project lead. Hi, nice to talk to you. Now, um, what is entailed in being the Fedora project lead currently for you? Um, well, the last month, it's been a lot of travel, and I know that's traditionally been the Fedora project leader kind of thing. I was at FOSDEM in uh, Brussels, and then at DevConf in Brno in the Czech Republic, and now I'm here in California on the other side of the world, so it's been kind of a whirlwind. Um, I think in general the role is to sort of be an overall point of contact for the project and to help connect people together and to make sure that everybody is working smoothly together and has no problems in getting the project to do the things it's meant to do. So would it be fair to say that the project lead in many cases is kind of a PR slash project manager type position almost? Um, there's definitely a PR component. Um, I don't know if there's so much project management involved. Um, it kind of can be flexible. We actually have somebody who is the program manager who helps work on the schedule and those kind of things, and um, several different committees that take care of some of the, the things that might traditionally be a program manager role. Um, it, it is kind of more of an overall oversight and communications kind of role than now, I'm just going to go ahead and dive into this question because it's one I've heard several times, and I think it would be good to get 
your perspective on it, it and I will say for you, this is probably not the most official end all answers, but w- the Fedora Project lead has always seemed to be someone who is a Red Hat employee. Why is it that this is always someone who is a Red Hat employee? And do you ever foresee it being someone who just comes up through the community and, you know, potentially become that position? Yeah, so it's actually a position that it's a definitely a full-time job and often a more than a full-time job. And so it is awesome of Red Hat to pay somebody full-time to work on it. And it's actually been the case uh, quite often that the people who come into the job are people who are involved in the Fedora community beforehand. It's not like Red Hat pulls somebody unknown from the Red Hat ranks and says, ta-da, you're the Fedora project leader before. So um, uh, Robin, um, who is the Fedora project leader before me, was working in the Fedora marketing and came to Red Hat's attention through that. Um, and Paul Frields the, uh, and Jared Smith, basically... I actually can't think of a project leader in the in recent history who hasn't been you know, a uh, community member first and Red Hat employee second. Um, and so uh, Fedora is also kind of a unique project because it is very closely tied to Red Hat in a way that some things like OpenStack, where you've got a bunch of big commercial interests vying for who's in charge of the project, and there might be um, you know it it might be the case that. You know, lots of different companies would be willing to fund a position like that. Um, with uh, Fedora being so closely tied to Red Hat, um, it's not like some, you know um, somebody's going to come up and say we're going to pay somebody else to do this, and it's quite a lot, quite a lot to ask somebody to do on on their own time. So it's nice that um, it's a Red Hat position, really. Well, I, I'm not arguing that you know it's not nice of Red Hat to employ the person, but it has always seemed that the person was. A Red Hat, you know, they may have been involved with the Fedora community. They, you know, end up being a Red Hat employee, but it never seems like it's someone who is comes up as strictly a Fedora project member and then be, takes that role. It always seems to be someone who, yes, has started out to be a Fedora project member, becomes a Red Hat employee, and then can move into that position. Do you see where I'm? I, um, I have to go back and check, but I think that uh, I, I think that it's actually been the case that people have been hired directly in, into this role rather than having a different um, Red Hat position first. But I, yeah, I was at Red Hat for a year and a half before I took this job, so um, so I, I fit I fit your pattern there. But uh, one of the things I've actually worked on is uh, traditionally uh, up until this fall. Um, the Fedora project leader has had a veto vote on the board, and then the only person with a veto vote in the in the governance. So basically, um, the power to say whatever I don't care what everybody else is doing, stop. I, I, I hold this Red Hat veto. And with the new Fedora Council that we've instituted, um, it's actually uh, go- going to a sort of a less antagonistic model there, where we have um, six full members of the council, and everybody ha- um, can-, can stop a decision that doesn't seem right. So it's no longer a thing that's just the FPL's uh, Red Hat veto, but basically we have to have complete consensus in order to move forward on things. And so that uh, council involves a couple people hired by Red Hat into, the, into roles, 
um, but also two completely elected positions open to anybody in the Fedora community to be elected into those positions, and then some also some meritocratic positions, which are appointed by FAMSCO and FESCO uh, into those things as well. So those all have a, a full, basically a full voice um, and e- equal weight in power with the Red Hat employed positions. Though it would be fair to say still that um, Red Hat employees still maintain a majority position in the voting that the, you know, basically it couldn't become a deadlock between what the Fedora community wants to go in a certain direction and Red Hat would like to see. It's still Red Hat has a lead in that position? Um, Yeah, so I I hope that we would never come to the position of a deadlock, and I think that if we did, that would be a need for a lot of soul-searching at that point, and the process we've set up basically um, is set up so that if it comes to a point of a deadlock like that, um, soul-searching is built in to what happens in that case. Um, I, I don't think it would... I don't think it will come to that. I, I hope it, it never does. And I think I, uh, one of the things I think that I, I hope we don't have such a big distinction between the community versus Red Hat. I hope that Red Hat acts as a um, as an as a stakeholder and a a, a sort of corporate community member, and then also a lot of people who work for Red Hat are individually community members, independent of their employment status. And I'm not trying to make Red Hat out to be a bad steward in this situation. I, you know, I am myself am a Fedora ambassador. This is, you know, a project that is important to me. I'm just trying to, you know, answer some questions I've heard myself around things, because I've heard, you know, I've heard questions myself of people say, can Fedora, the community, ever make a decision that would trump a direction that Red Hat wanted to go with? wanted to see Fedora go and one example I'll say is um, and if I make a mistake on this one please correct me so we get the facts out there but when Gnome 3 first came out it seemed like the art um, team wanted to be able to kind of brand Gnome 3 at the start a certain way and it seemed like Red Hat came out and said no we are going to roll out a very vanilla um, gnome, and that seem, that's kind of one of those situations I'm talking about. Yeah, so I think um, I think it's more complicated than that. I think the, definitely that there is no one Red Hat voice there, and I think that what you're seeing there is you know people with strong opinions who really um, feel um, that the gnome upstream experience is really. Uh, uh, design that is important to them, and that's what they what they want to do. And you know, Red Hat employs those people to work on GNOME and also onto Fedora. Um, and so, I, I don't think that there was actually any sort of Red Hat corporate voice in that point saying this is Red Hat's corporate opinion on that. And in fact, if you look at if you look at Rel, it's got a lot of branding on it that Fedora doesn't. So that might tell you some of the the way that comes out there. Um, and definitely, we're still we're still working out in Fedora and how to get that design because um, the GNOME people and uh, I I really value the purity and cleanliness of the GNOME user interface. It gets out of your way. That's nice. We don't want it to be all um, you know looking like a NASCAR kind of branded everywhere. But we still want to have a distinct Fedora identity to it. So we're trying to figure out how to do that nicely. And that's what I mean because if you look back at like the GNOME two, you know there were. 
even simple things, even like in the KD, you know, four version, that the you know kicker button is instead of being a K is an F. You know, simple brandings like that. Yeah, and so I think those those are things that are kind of gone. Um, they ha- kind of happen in ha- happened in Fedora, but I don't think that they're actually. I, I can see how it looks like that can can look like it's a Red Hat voice because a lot of people with you know redhat.com email addresses are saying one thing, but I don't think that it is actually a has ever been. A, this is the Red Hat's interests to do to do this to Fedora. It's um, a, a different thing from that. Uh, I, I think in general, one of the big values that Red Hat gets from having a really a strong community in Fedora is a sort of check and balances on, you know, is this the right direction for things to be going? And so I think that if the community external to Red Hat really felt like some direction was important and Red Hat felt like it was wrong, um, it would be a really, it, that, that would be an important um, time to stop and examine what's going on if it, if it comes to that. And now, as you, you know, we pointed out, you kind of came up through the perceived way of, you know, Fedora community member to Red Hat employee to the position you are now. Where did you get your start with the project? What did you get hired on at Red Hat to do before you, and how did you go from that to your current role as the project lead? Yeah, um, so... Um Travel with me back in time to uh, like uh, fifteen years ago. What? Hold it. Let's have a Wayne's World moment here. So uh, I was a systems administrator at Boston University, and at the time, uh, people were putting Linux into their departments, you know, um, server under their desk, kind of thing. And our security team was running around. Uh, basically because some, someone around the time did a study of you know, off-the-shelf Linux distributions, plugging them into a university network, and discovered that um, Red Hat Linux was the most secure because it took 15 minutes before it was broken into on average. Uh, so our security team was running around like crazy, uh, and basically there was a some, some movement towards, you, we just have to tell people they can't run Linux. Uh, but a lot of us loved Linux and didn't want that to happen, so we put together this thing called BU Linux, which was a distribution tailored for the university uh, to be more secure as a main goal, but also to tie into our Kerberos infrastructure and our AFS for software and things like that. Um, so I started working on that, and that was based on basically being a respin of Red Hat Linux. Uh, and then when Red Hat uh, decided to move toward the enterprise and go with Red Hat Enterprise Linux and drop the Red Hat Linux product, I kind of naturally followed into Fedora at the beginning of Fedora um, at that point. Um, so uh, we at BU hosted the first FUDCON conference, and so I was involved in that with some of the other people from BU. Um, and I've been involved on and off ever since then. Um, and so then I, after I left my job at BU, I was at Harvard for a while, and then um, this uh, job working on cloud stuff for Fedora came up, which was uh, I had been working on cloud at the School of Engineering at Harvard, and so uh, working on cloud for Fedora seemed like a great opportunity, so I jumped at it and uh, worked on that for a little bit, and then um, when Robin felt like she was done with the FPL job, I'd been talking with her a lot, and I thought, okay, well, see see if that's something I could do. So you just decided... Let's try to run a community, basically, and see how it goes. Yeah, well, I've been also been working on a lot of these ideas, like the Fedora Next thing, and sort of, um, sort of working on sort of some ideas for you know what Fedora what could look like over the next decade. So it's not like I, I hope came out kind of out of nowhere, 
into that, um, and hopefully um, I'll, I'll be able to be a, a good steward for the project. For the, the, okay, so Fedora Next is something that's fairly recent. Can you expand on what Fedora Next is? Is it a project? Is it a philosophy? What is it? What's the goals of Fedora Next? Yeah, it's, it's an umbrella. Um, it's basically the idea that... Um, we've been doing a really good job at putting releases out and kind of gotten to a sort of well-oiled state where we'd been every six months putting out a release um, without very much thinking about what how we would do it. I mean, a, a little bit. But uh, when we got to, um, I don't know, Fedora 19 or so, it just sort of followed on the footsteps of 18 without uh, sort of a, a uh, wheel was turning and nobody was um, looking at where it was going. And... So you were you're saying basically Fedora had become just a kind of a well-oiled machine and just creating a new spin. It wasn't innovating in some respects other than Fedora is kind of known as being kind of one of those bleeding edge distros that brings in the latest, you know, you know, kind of the future of what Linux yeah. is going to be. Right, and, and don't get me wrong, it was doing that very well, but it was also it's also showing some scaling problems as we get to like 20,000 packages. It's starting to take overnight in order to put together the entire distribution, um, and once once that exceeds 24 hours, I don't know don't know what we'll do. And it gets it it's growing fast enough that we can't just throw hardware at the problem. It needs some different design things. Um, and also, we have a lot of things where people are doing innovative new ideas and operating systems, like CoreOS was a little minimal operating system with containerized applications running on top of it. And nobody was doing those things in Fedora. So it seemed like the center of innovation had moved off to somewhere else. Uh, and if you look at open source software, a lot of what we've you know, done is worked on packaging all the software into Fedora. been very successful. Like I said, it's really, really grown. But if you look at sort of the center of open source energy in the internet today, I think probably you have to say it's GitHub, it's not any of the Linux distributions. Uh, and so uh, we're not going to turn into GitHub, but it seems like we want to make sure that we are not completely missing missing the point of what's going on in software today, especially as you know, um, th- those of us who have been involved for a long time get older. We need to bring new people in, and how do we get them engaged in the project and find find the value that we can offer to them and you know, continue to offer the value that we always have to everybody. Uh, so, anyways, all these things floating around, it looked like it was time to stop and say, okay, rather than just cranking forward, let's look and see what we want to be doing with Fedora, how what, how can we address these problems and whatever other problems we might see, um, how can we, uh, you know, what, what things do we need to do, and so uh, we took... Uh, we added, you know, the last release took an extra six months, basically it was a full year cycle. We added time to work on tooling for QA. Our QA team was saying, in order to keep scaling up, we need to work on our tools, but we're so busy doing the actual QA, we can't, we don't have time to work on the tools. So we gave them some time to work on some automation, actually work on the tools for that. Um, and so uh, all that you know, is, is kind of under this umbrella of Fedora Next in general um, to sort of look at what we're doing next and how, how we want to present Fedora in the future. And Fedora has traditionally had several respins, and one of the things that seems to have come out of Fedora Next is some new ideas in some of these respins. Yeah, so this is uh, actually, not, not, you know, we've got our, our complicated terminology here, but... Um, the respins are things made by people outside of the project that may add software that we don't we don't have, or the remixes are. And then we have spins, which are sort of different variants. And now we have these uh, cloud server and workstation editions. Um, that is Steve Gallagher's idea to to do this. 
Uh, and basically that came out of the, the idea that when, back in the day, I talked about you know Red Hat Linux and going to Red Hat Enterprise Linux, Fedora inherited a pretty good sysadmin user base and a lot of server, server use that people were doing with Fedora. Um, but it also became the case, you know, but also a lot of home users and a lot of desktop use and and so on. And over over the um, you know over that decade, as Fedora tried to find out, you know, who is our target audience? What are we doing this for? Um, the default offering ended up being a desktop, which has been very successful. But there's always been kind of an undercurrent of you know, people using it for other things who felt like they weren't being very well represented in the project. And I think it kind of came to the case where. Um, all of the sysadmins except the most grumpy ones had felt kind of pushed out and the grumpy ones felt like and I'm, I'm caricaturing a little bit and I'm including myself as one of these grumpy ones don't don't let me uh, <laughs> get otherwise uh, where it felt, felt like if you're a sysadmin involved in Fedora your job needed to be telling the desktop people to stop breaking stuff and so you, so your job became stop energy and then that made a really bad dynamic and it wasn't healthy for the project at all so part of the idea with Fedora server is to say here is a part of the project that is it's made for sysadmins this is where you can positively contribute and the, the decisions that the desktop team may make for the desktop don't necessarily affect what's going on here, and you can make decisions that are separate from the desktop. So, for example, XFS is going to be the file system on Fedora Server coming up, even though XFS isn't necessarily the best desktop file system. Which, switching Fedora, you know, having Fedora Server being XFS, XFS, that's kind of matching with um, RHEL Kern, is it not? Yeah, that, that's true. And so also... Um, you know, one of the big, you know, obviously Red Hat's a big stakeholder here, and so there isn't necessarily a big alignment between a desktop operating system and you know what Red Hat makes a lot of money from in RHEL. And so having something that uh, could be a more more clear alignment there uh, with a big stakeholder is definitely a, a useful thing, even though the the main goal really is to serve Fedora users, not necessarily uh, RHEL. That's just kind of a happy um, thing that works out with our stakeholder. So there, there is a clear distinction between the respins, remixes, and these new offerings. Yeah. And the new offerings, um, can you go over, because you mentioned Fedora Server, where it's finally kind of, you know, a dedicated, you know, server versus, you know, trying to find a, uh, you know, base install and building up your server there. So what are some of these new flavors, for yeah. lack of a better term, for yeah. Fedora. Um, so um, the idea with Fedora Server is it's focused on some new software development, a thing called RollKit, and a GUI called Cockpit that's a web-based GUI that um, I'm assured should not conjure up images of um, webmen and to those kind of web consoles. So, uh, but anyways, push-button deployment of uh, things like uh, complicated things like a domain controller, database server, identity management system. Uh, with a fairly easy push-button deployment and um, hooks that can tie into your configuration management. So on the Active Directory one, you mean something similar to the um, um, Zentile project out there where you could do a push-button deployment that can replicate being like a Windows Active Directory. But there's also... Fedora, Atomic. Can you talk about some yeah. of these other? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the server. Um, let me go to the go to the workstation next. So that's the um, our our big desktop offering that we're promoting is Fedora Workstation, and the name is kind of meant to imply that it is a desktop for more technical people, 
and not not that regular people can't use it, but that uh, so our our target audience is actually software developers, and not necessarily developers making Fedora, but anybody creating and writing software in general. So you're saying Fedora is finally kind because for a long time people have said Fedora doesn't really have a defined user base other than someone who's interested in kind of the bleeding edge. Fedora with Fedora Workstation, are you implying that they are finally saying our core target for Fedora, you know, desktop? This part of Fedora, right. Okay, for at least Fedora Workstation is software developers, but then where does that leave your average desktop user? Are you saying now because there is not Fedora desktop anymore, there's Fedora Workstation, is that could kind of imply to a lot of people that regular desktop users are not an interest to us. Yeah, so um, let me go back like half half of that statement. It is definitely the case that the idea is to say this is our, our um, I used a nice term, I forget what it was, but uh, the, the core user base of this, of, of this design is for the for the set of people, and that helps sort of focus decision making. If you're like, if you're trying to decide, you know, I'm going to make this user experience work in this way. If you uh, try to make it work for everybody, it can always end up mushy. So having a, a concrete use case in mind can really help with that. Uh, so hopefully that will help um, the design um, move forward in the future, and hopefully we can also pick up some a new user base there that we haven't necessarily been growing into before. Um, one of the, the lines I use a lot, though, is that developers are people, too. So a lot of the concerns that a software developer have, like fundamentally, things like making, making all of your, you know, your, um, your second monitor work out of the box, making your web browser work nicely, making a smooth experience with media, all of those things are concerns of uh, regular people, not just developers. So developers are foremost regular people and then um, also, also developers. So that's... Um, I, I think that the workstation will not leave most people out in the cold, but it is also the case that this isn't all there is to Fedora. So if, if you feel like you are in a different class, we've got the different spins. We've got the KDE, XFCE spins. Uh, if somebody would like to come and make a completely you know, end-user-focused GNOME spin, I think there's room for that, although I don't know, you know what resources we have to work on it, but there's there's room to do that. It's, it's of interest to somebody. Um, I think that uh, we may, may be fooling ourselves a little bit if we think that Fedora has always been for the general desktop user because it's tended towards the um, bleeding edge. It's always been a little bit harder for um, the um, completely naive user to use. So it's always uh, been a little bit more uh, advanced. And actually, we hope that by focusing at, at developers, we actually will make it easier overall for people who don't necessarily want to muck with their system but want to get something done with it. Okay, so you think that by targeting software developers, you're um, going to help improve things for the normal desktop user. But what about that perception by saying, you know, Workstation is for developers, and, you know, that is the flagship one. You know, the respins, you kind of almost have to know someone to, you know, know about these. You know, what about that perception, though, that it might be kind of, you know... Are there any thoughts on how to address that to help make people understand that, yes, this is for, you know, we're targeting software developers, but, you know, it's not going to be something that leaves you behind just because we're targeting this? Yeah, I guess I would suggest people should try it and they will see if, see if they like it. Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of a hard thing, but it's... It, 
pretty pretty well established that you know um, in order you, you can't please everybody with everything. So picking a picking a niche and trying to really really succeed in that niche is going to help us grow more than trying to make it uh, appeal to everybody. Um, that's basically the idea. And hopefully, I think that I think that um, the everybody that we want to get involved will be um, smart enough that they'll be able to ha- handle it as well. And one of the other new ones is Fedora Atomic. Yes. Uh, talk, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so actually we have Fedora Cloud, which at this point has um, two separate streams underneath it because of how it worked out. Um, and so basically the idea of the cloud computing is not necessarily this idea of all your, you know, all your MP3s are stored in, on somebody else's server somewhere. It's the idea that... Um, computing that CPU cycles memory storage is a resource that you can pay for as a utility and so uh, the the Fedora cloud image is meant to help people who are building things like that um, use Fedora to enable whatever they're working on. So we have a Fedora cloud base image, which is, as the name kind of implies, a minimal image. You can build up whatever you want on top of it. And we put a lot of work into uh, making that a lot smaller than it was. So it's something like um, a uh, 150 megabyte QCOW image for the uh, for the entire you know, functional minimal image, which is... No, it's not. It's not minuscule, but uh, it's it's a nice, comfortable size to work with. Uh, and then you can basically do that, and then use you know uh, your traditional YUM DNF to install whatever you want, build up on top of that um, whatever you want to run in your cloud workload. Uh, and then the new thing we have is this Project Atomic, which is uh, based on something Colin Walters has been working on called OS Tree, which lets you basically switch between one version of the operating system to the next. Um, with no chance of having um, broken upgrades in the middle of it. Um, in some ways, um, for maybe some um, some of the gamers I know out there, you could look at it as almost like the BIOS on some motherboards that are double and triple BIOSes. So. Yeah, it's, a, it's like that, although in this case it's actually more like a Git tree, so you can switch arbitrarily between different commits, which is kind of cool. Um, so it's, it, it's even more flexible than the, the AB model. And so then on top of this, you basically have a, a operating system that's designed for a certain purpose. In this case of, case of Atomic, it's designed to run containerized applications using Docker to be a really awesome, secure platform for running your Docker applications. Uh, so you want to build it. Instead of, instead of building something up in the cloud in a traditional uh, uh, you know, VM sort of way, you build it up with different containers that connect together. Um, and so we have some people like, I know, uh, Colab, the group where people are, have a system where they have something like 27 different containers that their whole system runs in and or, uh, with orchestration between it. Uh, so that's going to be one of the, the neat things we can show off in Fedora. All right. And then there's, of course, the respins. You have the, you know, my preferred version of Fedora, the KDE one. There's the security. There's several of these there. What makes, what defines a respin versus a remix. Right. Okay, so so um, the spins don't have an, a re on them. They're just spins. They're spun one time, I guess. It's kind of confusing terminology. So we have spins and remixes. And so spins are official parts of the Fedora project, and they're built in, you know, in our release engineering infrastructure. They're signed by us. 
um, you know, the contributors who are actively working within the project and our infrastructure put them together using all Fedora packages. So everything that's in it comes from the project officially, and there's no everything is free and open source software. There's no deviation from what we can legally put in Fedora. And those things, and up until now, um, all of those things have also had the same configuration as you can't have a, a different configuration in the packages as um, the defaults, and I think that hopefully in the future we'll be able to change that a little bit, so just like Fedora Workstation, Fedora Server might differ from the defaults, um, the KDE spin could differ in um, some different ways if um, people working on that feel that that's the best presentation of KDE. And we're talking past just, you know, artwork. We're talking, you know, digging in deeper into the system and making config changes that might help the system run better in a certain, for certain perceived uses. Yeah, tune for different workloads, you know, different file system, different firewall configurations for different assumptions, those kind of things. Um, and so then remixes are a step further than that. They're, they're um, basically derivatives of Fedora that are um, allowed to use the Fedora name but take place outside of the project. So um, Pydora is is one of these things where they use you know kernel modules of things that are not part of Fedora to run on the Raspberry Pi. Um, and then another really important one is Russian Fedora, which um, basically you know, focuses things for the Russian language and then also includes um, media codecs and things that we can't in the United States. All right. Um, in, if someone wants to get involved with the Fedora community, where, what is their best place to start? There's an awesome new thing of what can I do for fedora.org that Fedora hacker Ralph Bean put together that is meant to actually answer that question. It pops up some things like you know, get involved in marketing. Does that sound interesting? And you can click yes or no, and it will uh, take you to the, the place of, of your interest. All right. And if um, people in the Hacker Public Radio community wanted to, you know, connect with you to talk to you if they had any further questions um what's the best way they can do that um i am matt dm m-a-t-t-d-m uh, on basically all the things twitter uh free node irc send me email um i'm pretty open to any sort of communication and one question i've been asked to ask and i've forgotten up until now what is your preferred text editor joe i use joe um, when I'm editing config files for a system or something, I use VI because that's what God intended. But if I'm writing email or editing files, composing, I use Joe. And is there anything else at this point you'd like to, you know, add, say, to the hacker, you know, HPR community, things you want them to know that maybe I've glossed over at this point? Um, go to getfedora.org and download a variant of Fedora that looks interesting to you and try it out. Um, if you're skeptical about anything, um, you know, as, as hackers, you know, getting, getting your hands on things is the best way to answer any questions. Um, actually, there is a little more that I just remembered I wanted to bring up. So, you know, if you have the time yeah. to go. Um, one of the big things that recently happened, and now this, we are moving outside of Fedora a little bit here, but I think it still can apply, is was Red Hat's acquisition of the CentOS project. Um, what was kind of the genesis of this, and if this is something you can, you know, comment on, or is this kind of outside of you? 
Um, it's mostly outside of me. I, I, I think it's very interesting. I think it's... Um, as, as a Fedora person, I like it because it kind of grows our ecosystem and our community. And there's always been kind of a um, a thing in Fedora. Can, can we mention CentOS? Are we allowed to tell people that that might fit their needs? Should we um, do a don't ask, don't tell kind of thing about CentOS? And so now this kind of makes it more clear. This is something that you know Red Hat's cool with. It, it's okay. Uh, it's it's part of the ecosystem, and hopefully we can do. Um, you know, there's some really brilliant people working on CentOS, and hopefully we can do some more collaboration with them. And I I I will say one of the you know wonderful things is there were some times there with the CentOS project where because that was not these people's jobs that you know there were delays in that and you know kind of like where. You know, in your case, you, you know, became, you know, from the community, you became a Red Hat employee. It's kind of nice to see, you know, what is essentially REL get hired by Red Hat to continue working on it. You know, it's CentOS, but it's still, yeah. you know, essentially REL. Yeah, um, I, I think... There are a lot of things that are different between CentOS and RHEL. I mean, it's it's really it's not literally the same bits, the same source code, but but rebuilt, um, and so it's not uh, exactly the same. It doesn't have the same certifications and things like that. But it fills a really important place in the ecosystem, and it, I think that Red Hat recognized that. I mean, this is me wildly speculating at this point, but I think Red Hat realized that having CentOS there in that ecosystem was um, much better than having something hostile in that same space. So having something, uh, you know, a community distribution, uh, downstream distribution that um, Red Hat could work with seemed, seemed like a good idea, I guess. But that's me speculating, not any sort of actual knowledge. All right. Well, thank you for your time, and this has been Lord Dragonblood here with Matthew Miller, Miller, Fedora Project Lead. So, by all means, check them out and get involved. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.